Before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk about our partner for this podcast, BravoPay. BravoPay is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page on their app and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share your Bravo link with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at app.trybravo.com. I'll also leave a link in the description. You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to The 80-20 Show. I am your host, Mike Zemerlich. And this is a special interview, as I have two prior team members of 8020 Records, Matt Winchell and Jason Schaff, on the podcast. The three of us reminisce about prior shows we've done, and since it's April 1st, we dived into our April Fool's Day show, which was both a failure and a success, as you will find out. For any of you out there that has promoted a show, or if you're thinking about putting on a show, this episode has a ton of lessons that we've learned along the way. It is my pleasure to give you Matt and Jason. Hey, Matt. Hey, Jason. How are you guys doing? Doing good. good. How are you, man? Doing fantastic. Thanks. I really appreciate being on the podcast. I know the three of us have been talking about it. And uh, for this particular episode, I felt it was so appropriate for so many reasons. So um, really do appreciate you being on here. Absolutely. Anytime, man. Excited. So uh, we're going to go, and, and I, I think everyone listening knows this, is that I like to tell the origin stories, but uh, for the three of us, uh, we have a definitely a more unique origin story together. So um, we, the three of us, have all met in high school and became really good friends, and this was way before 8020 Records or anything like that, I, even yep. before I knew I wanted to be involved in the music industry. So... Um, so we'll start with uh, you, Jason, and that um, how did you, first of all, how did you get uh, interested into music? Like, where did that passion come from? And uh, what made you decide that you want to get involved in the music industry or specifically uh, with 8020 Records? Man, that, that could be its own five-part <laughs> podcast series in and of itself. But to try and keep it brief, uh, yeah. I grew up around music. I like to say that my parents raised me on uh, Bottles, Baby Food, and Beatles. Beatles was always played around the house all the time. Uh, my parents played music in the car all the time on cassettes. Uh, they had a, a record collection that I would dig through all the time when I was a kid, which was fascinated by. And then that got me into wanting to play guitar eventually. Then I moved out to Arizona. Then I, I played drums because that was my original passion, but there weren't enough spots in the uh, middle school band at the time for me to play drums at the time. So I got into drums and that was my thing. Meanwhile, I was starting to collect a really uh, big music collection and getting more of an influence in the music, you know, discovering more artists and genres and styles. And then it got to a point by end of high school, start of co- starting of college to where I wanted to kind of, you know, do my own thing, be my own band, record my own music and stuff like that. And I had some failed auditions. It kind of went okay. Uh, the, the thing that, uh, had the most success was this kid uh, I knew, Chris Ovenbrino, knew this guy. He's basically on the board of Marriott. He was had enough money to where he had his own studio. And he introduced me to him. And I ended up recording some demos 
but I couldn't really sing that well. So I brought on this girl I knew from my church choir, Nicole, she came on board and we eventually developed uh, this band called Lifeless Riot, which is still on Bandcamp for any listeners that want to check out what I sound like in high school. Wow. Uh, I know, I kind of cringed uh, hearing that recently, but there's still some good stuff there. But anyway, so we had a good 11th song album recorded. You know, he paid for everything and stuff like that. And uh, I brought it to you because you were looking for artists to be on indie radio. That's right. Yep. Yeah. And so I, you were looking for stuff. I brought them to you and Zach. Zach was a part of indie radio, right? So I brought them to uh-huh. you guys. You had them on. You know, you had that album on there along with a bunch of other stuff. And then eventually when that kind of faded into 8020, uh you we we were talking about the Lifeless Riot album being one of the first albums that would that would be brought on. I talked to Nicole, who was the singer, loved the idea. Uh and we we even had a meeting, I think, somewhere in uh, the promenade. We were going over the contracts and stuff like that. And so I brought him over to George, who was the guy that did a lot of the instrumentation, produced everything. And uh, he essentially came back, was like really pissed off that we never toured behind anything or did behind did anything behind it. And essentially said, you can have Lifeless Riot for the name for 800 bucks. And right. I was like, well, so they, so that that's not going to be on 820. I remember like showing it to Nicole and her attitude suddenly changed from like being all positive, like being on the label to like, I agree with everything he said. So that was kind of like, so... You know, between that kind of thing and then I had some personal stuff going on that kind of got abandoned. But then once everything kind of, you know, got better on my end, you know, I was like, well, what can I do behind the scenes? Because at that point, I was like, I'm probably not going to, you know, do anything on the music front. So what's it like to be behind the scenes to, to you know, be a part of a record label and all that stuff, you know, and, you know, how what can, what, I don't know how does that work and how can I help? And so that's when I kind of came on board, Mike, and started helping you with shows and the label over time and you know doing all the A&R campaigns and stuff that i did yeah it's amazing like even back then it's 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 so hard to get to get, to get artists to sign contracts to get them on board yeah. <laughs> yeah. especially especially the beginning and uh so yeah it was it's amazing to uh to think like how you know it's amazing how one thing kind of leads to another um yeah yeah absolutely so, so Matt, uh, tell me, tell me your story. How did you get into music, and how that leads you into uh, joining Eighty Twenty? Sure. Um, I kind of feel like Jason, where that could be like a two, three hour story. Um, <laughs> but mostly, I my father worked for Fender and wanted me to do something like as, as a hobby, and um, I'd say. Like 1998, 99, I started taking um, guitar lessons and learning how to play guitar. Um, that led into high school where I joined um, the Sultans of Rock, which Sultans is kind of Rock, like yes. <laughs> uh, good old Mr. Spiesman, um, yeah. where mostly about setting up rock performance and live performance with different bands and try, trying to get all the musicians in high school together to kind of jam together and to, to make bands and we'd perform during our lunch concerts, which was really, really fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, so I did that mostly in high school. And then, you know, after high school, um, went from different bands, just playing shows. Um, I was in a band for a while called Politic 89, where we were playing um, out quite a bit. Um, did that, uh, learned bass. While I was um, in those bands, I was, going to Scottsdale Community College because I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do 
with music. So I, I was taking classes on studio recording and digital recording. And I was thinking about working, you know, as probably a, a, an audio engineer. But uh, as I kind of investigated the possibilities of really working for a studio and making a living, it just didn't really sound realistic to me. Um, and it sounded very competitive. So kind of changed um, my path to doing music business. So I started taking marketing and um, just different classes based on promotion and, and working for a label. And that, that ran kind of coincide with 8020 because I had heard about it. And, you know, I talked to you about it, Mike, and I had a, an internship coming up at Scottsdale Community College uh, regarding music business. So all those things kind of mixed together. And I thought being a part of the label would help me with my education and kind of help me with my music business degree. So um, those things kind of blended together. So I made more of like a, a transition from, from doing a lot of like live shows to focusing more on music business and working for the label and whatnot. Yeah, you were actually probably, um, I mean, you were either the, the first or one of the first uh, interns to join 8020 Records back then. Yeah. Because I don't think I had yeah. anybody bef before, honestly, that before that point. I know one of our first ones was uh, Joey Gutos, who, um, from Sunset Voodoo. Um, yeah. He oh. was one of the first, he was definitely one of the first ones. And I am I know that was right around, I think, your your time that you were joining, Matt, too. So um, you're definitely, whether we're the, the first or one of the first, for sure. Yeah. Joey, he was a nice guy. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jason, um, one of the stories that I have told quite a number of times uh, is about how I got inspired into entrepreneurship, which yeah. is from something called Market Day. And Market Day, for everyone who's listening, uh, was something that was done at our high school where we all the students in the economics class would have to sell something to their fellow peers uh, in the hallway. So in between classes and during lunch times, uh, we would actually have our own tables and booths set up and we would have to sell something. And that was actually our capstone project for, uh, for that particular class. So uh, Zach, uh, my business partner who started Indie Radio and 8020 Records, uh, and I were, uh, we, we paired up in the class and then we sold uh, video yearbooks. So um, we actually worked out a deal with the television station and got the content and then put it onto, we edited it and put it into a DVD and then sold it to our classmates. Um, and I do have a fun story to tell about that. But um, Jason, well, what do you remember? Because I know you mentioned earlier that you had a story to yeah. tell about Market Day. So like I said earlier, I had, a, I, I still do, but it's vinyl. But at the time I had a pretty extensive CD collection. And in high school, what I would do is I would buy the CD, I would rip the CD on my, on my computer. I don't know if I had an external hard drive, but I had a pretty big hard drive. And then the CDs would essentially be sitting in a box in a room. Mm. And on top of that, our, our school also had a public library that had a lot of music that you could check out too. So I would really check out 25 to 30 CDs at a time and rip them all on my computer and check them back in. Oh, oh we, it, did, it, we, it, did, it we didn't hear about that here. We did not yeah. hear about that here. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but they, they ended up imposing a, imposing a limit on how many things you could check out, probably because I was literally checking out 25 to 30 things at once. But anyway, so I had this box of records of, of CDs sitting at home. And so I was like, I'm just going to be a music store and sell off my record collection. And I remember you had to write the pitch and submit it. And then there was some sort of meeting it was in the closed off upper deck of the auditorium. And I think you had a board, a kind of a three-person board that you went to to present your idea. 
And I remember with me, there was a discussion because this was 2002. This was like when piracy was the dirty word. Napster was a thing yeah. and all that stuff. And the debate was, can Jason, can Jason sell his music? And they, they approved it because I was not made selling copies of stuff. I wasn't burning CDs. This was like my legit collection. This was the copy I bought of everything. So they approved it. And so I had like a music store in the courtyard in front of the big doors. And I ended up making a profit of $119, which was the most profit out of anybody in my little group, which I then spent on more music. Which because <laughs> when you're a music junkie, that's what you do with your extra money. So yeah, that was that was that was that's that's my market day story. Yeah. Which, which was way beyond us. So you 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 really kicked <laughs> kicked yeah. us because we I think we sold a whopping three copies uh, or three or four copies of the video yearbook and that was it. Yeah. So we made like a whopping like I don't know like 30 40 bucks. Like and that doesn't include like the cost for the packaging. So yeah. we did not we uh, and also we had to work out a deal. So this uh, brings me into my fun story to tell because this was an early lesson in uh, how to cover your ass because in in high school uh, we actually signed a contract with the teacher who was the supervisor for the TV station at the time oh, and wow. we made out we worked out a deal that they would get a percentage cut of okay. of the video yearbook sales and our you know our project was approved because I do remember Jason about having that whiteboard and putting up the ideas and so our idea was approved and we were and Zach and I were working on it for you know, quite some time, at least a couple of months, uh, acquiring all the content and editing it and doing, putting the packaging together and everything like that. And about a week out, I get a message. Um, I think it was a phone call. I think my folks got it or I'm trying to remember how, but, oh, I remember that I was in chess club. Yes, everyone. I'm a nerd. I don't care. I'm very proud of this fact. I was hey, in Queen's chess. Gambit, chess is big right now. Chess is big right now. So there you go. I'm cool again. Um, so I was in a chess club and um, I think uh, an assistant principal or a teacher found me and came into and came there and mentioned to me that there is a problem with our project. And I found out that they apparently couldn't allow us to use the television footage, which our entire project was based upon. And this was literally a week before market day. So there was no way that Zach and I would we would literally fail the class. Because we had no time to do anything else. Nothing was approved. It was way past that deadline. And they so said that this footage not... was archival footage from previous news broadcasts. Is that what this footage yep. is? Yep, okay. exactly. It was it was archival footage of news broadcasts from um, Desert Mountain Television. Was it because they've had Bush's machine head in front of every single single broadcast? Was it rights rights from Bush? Was Bush calling like you can't use this footage? I think because it's owned by the school that they that the teacher. Oh, okay. I think that the thing was that the teacher, I guess, wasn't supposed to sign off on that. Like that oh, okay. he was not supposed to do that. He didn't have That's, the authority. Yeah. He didn't have the necessarily the authority to do so. But I remember this very well. Is that I was so I was stressed. I was frustrated. Uh, I was I was very angry and I was like, I was so worried. I mean, this was senior year. Yeah. I was supposed to be graduating. Yeah. Zach and I were supposed to be graduating, and all of a sudden, because of this whole mix-up, we may not graduate. So I was oh. nervous as hell, and um, I I remember my um, my both my parents are like, "Do you want us to come down there and, and and tell them straight?" I'm like, "Let let me see what I can do first. So um, I they told me to go. Um, so I went into 
one of the assistant principal's office, and in there was um, the assistant principal and the teacher um, of the uh, station. And I looked right on his desk was a piece of paper, and it was the signed contract. And oh. I go in there, and he goes, yep, you're fine. You can go. And I was like, okay. And I just left, <laughs> and that was the end of it. And if it wasn't for the fact that we had a signed contract, like we, I would have been impro- I would have had a problem. There would have yeah. been some issues there. But because I had that signed contract, that that's what saved us. That's what yeah. saved Zach and I was that yeah. signed contract. Yeah, well, thank you. Got it. Yeah, but that's why. Like, I that was a lesson I learned very early on is is to always cover yourself. You know, even- CYA. Yep, CYA. Yeah. I can't I can't express that enough as CYA. I'm surprised I've never heard that story before. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> you know, I don't tell it much in, in depth usually, but uh yeah, it's it's one of the most fundamental lessons I've ever learned. And that's why when people were like, Why are you so cautious, Mike? I'm like, Because I've learned over the years that you have to. I'll have contracts yeah. I'll have contracts with friends because you know, you just have it make sure everything that's it's not to necessarily um that you don't trust each other, it's just that make sure that everything's very clear on what the expectations are with each other. And, um, you know, and also, or also if there's a problem outside of that and that, you know, Mm -hmm. that's another problem as well. And like in the case of, Mm -hmm. you know, of, of that story is that even though the teacher that himself was not trying to do any kind of ill will, it was something outside that was, you know, that was trying to circumvent that. And if it wasn't for the fact that we had a contract that like, no, we had a binding agreement that we go for. And fortunately yeah. I was 18 at the time. So it was a binding yeah. contract that yeah. that's what's, and I, that's I, what I, I've heard stories about how people think like, you know, contracts can be unnecessary and they may weigh you down too much. And like, this is my friend. He's my friend's not going to yeah. do anything to hurt me or stuff like that. And then like you hear months, years later, even if it was unintentional, it's like, man, this person screwed me over. Like I never thought they would, you know? So even if you're friends with somebody, even if, you think that both parties have the best of intentions, you know, it's just like people that sign prenups, you never intend to divorce the person that you marry, but it's something that you have in case something happens, you know, you just want to cover yeah. yourself in that way. Whenever money's involved, you know, that's when you really need something ironclad because you can't just have like a handshake deal. Yeah. Even if you're friends, it's like when it comes down to money, you know, you got to be able to divide it the right way. Yeah. It changes people. And, you know, sometimes yeah. it, it doesn't have to be like a 30 page, you know, thing either. It could be just, li- I've, I've literally had agreements where they're just literally a paragraph and that's it. It's just, yeah. like, you know, very, yeah. you know, very casual English, not legalese. It just spells out what, what the deal is and so forth. And yeah. then, you know, then, and then, you know, that's the end of it. It's just that it, it just makes a very clear cut that this is, it's in writing that we both signed off on, that this is what the deal is and so forth. Especially yeah. like you said, Matt, when there's money involved. Um, especially when there's money involved. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just important to have those things in place because you just, you know, like you guys said, you just don't know, you know, money does change people and in relationships change. That's a very natural thing to have happen. So you just want to be clear about those things to protect, to protect yourself and to protect them too. It's to protect everybody. Yeah. Great. So, all right, we, let's go ahead and move on then, um, to, the next part of our uh, I guess chapter of this episode, which is let's talk. I would like to talk more about touring and shows on uh, okay. 20 records. <laughs> uh, so we can start. 
um, I was actually trying to debate on how I wanted to start this part. Uh, we'll start with the April Fool's Day show because okay. the fact that that this episode is coming out on April first, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring um, bring both of you on board is to talk about the April Fool's Day show, which was Woo! I believe the second uh, second show we've ever done. So at this point in time, we done yeah. a Halloween show, which was literally the year that eighty twenty records um, was formed. Mm-hmm. And that went fantastically well. It was at this location called Modified Arts. It was yeah. know, it sold out. I mean, it was like you couldn't yeah. ask for a better result. Everyone no. had a great time and everyone was Everyone cheering. was into it. The bands wore costumes. We had the signed rock band. All the artists signed it. And we gave that away as a prize. It was, it was a success, as successful as we could have imagined, really. It for is. For where we were at. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, everyone was was super happy. We had the the costume contest, which went super yeah. well, and we, we had a rock band too with all the artists that the lineup that played that night. They all signed it. It was, it was such such a good time, and um, we we made we actually made some money on that show too. So did, yeah. I, I was on, you know, I was so happy with those results because I'm like, I made money from this show. Everyone had a good time. Everyone mm-hmm. showed up. You know, it was yeah. such such a great thing. I mean, I had such a good time. And uh, so I definitely knew I wanted to do a show again, but it was quite a while. Uh, it was almost two years, a year and a half. Year and a half, years, probably, yeah. Year and a half later um, that I wanted to do another show and didn't want to do another Halloween show again because yeah. I didn't want to just be known as, okay, we're just the label that does Halloween shows. So knew it didn't want to do a Halloween show. So I was trying and was trying to think of a different holiday that wasn't very competitive on yeah. events. And again, that was the other thing too. I knew that Halloween was a very competitive time frame because of all the parties and shows and events, everything yeah. that's going on. Um, same thing is true with, with um, the holidays, um, so around Christmas time, things like that too. That's also a highly competitive time frame. Um, and you know, Fourth of July here is just impossible to do anything. So, um, you know, because we we all live in Arizona, where you know by Fourth, you know, July Fourth, it's like 120 degrees outside. No joking. Yeah, that's, that's not a fun show. Yeah, yeah, that's not a fun show. <laughs> yeah. So July Fourth was out of the question. Yeah. Um, the the holidays in the fall were out of the question. So we're trying to think of something else. And I thought, well, you know what? Not many people do uh, like anything special, like a a show on april fool's day like there's always like you know fun memes and jokes and things like that but there's no like event so what if we like just like just for fun like did yeah. a show on april fool's day yeah that, that was when the came that's where the idea kind of came up of, of let's let's do that yeah it was just one of those it was one of those days where like you said nobody it was a fun day that nobody really took advantage of on the show front right and so you know, we thought it was a really clever idea. We thought it could be something that was successful, could be just like our thing. You know, 8020, when it comes to the local music scene, has April Fool's Day covered, you know. And, it, it, you know, it'd be unique, it'd be fun, you know. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what we want to go next. Uh, I know, I think once we divide, once we determine the day, it was the venue, I think, right? Yeah, so then there's, then there's the venue. So we did it at Alice Cooperstown, um, yeah. which... Yeah is no longer around anymore but yeah um but we decided on Alice Cooper's Town because at that point we wanted to try we I because the first show was so successful I'm like let's let's ramp this up and see how far we can take this now so I wanted to have a larger venue and because April is usually a really nice time around here something that was outside so there was not that many choices at that point and so uh, that's why I thought about Alice Cooperstown because I had that yeah. huge outdoor patio. Yeah. It would be able to hold twice 
uh, at least twice as the number of people that was at Modified Arts. Yeah. And so, and also the you know Alice Cooper sound being from like literally the legendary musician Alice Cooper. Yeah. yeah. That yeah, also yeah. had the name behind it too. So I thought, okay, it, there's the name branding behind it. There's it's outdoors. It's a larger. It's a larger uh, space that we can have our event. Uh, has food there, so everyone can get food. It, it, to me, it felt like yeah. the the it was downtown Phoenix. So I was like, yeah. oh, that's perfect because a centralized location for everybody. So yeah, it was all it. those things I thought that this would be the perfect. Yeah, location. like for me, it was all about Alice Cooper. Like I thought people would be like, oh my, oh man, they had this at Alice Cooper's venue. This guy, that has to be legit. You know, this guy's like an icon of the music community and stuff like. That that like i thought just the name brand recognition alone would be huge for us and then of course like it was downtown phoenix a couple blocks away from the you know the ballpark we could draw some people from uh, i think i don't know if there was a basketball game either but it's also it was right behind almost uh you know i, I guess what is now talking is this still talking stick resort arena yes it's still uh, talking stick i think yeah so it was right behind the basketball arena so people yep. that were walking to it from the game could come by so yeah, I thought, like I said, I, I too was still on location as well. I thought it, would, it was like the, the the great next step for us on that front. Absolutely. So I uh, talk. I know I talked to the, to the event organizer for the space, worked out a deal with them, and so forth, that we would have it out. You know. Um, for that day for April 1st and everything we want to make sure that it was actually going to be available on that day so locked in the venue then uh and then it was comes down to putting together the lineup and yep. so I actually checked recently so the lineup was uh race you there it was the what? door sets <laughs> yeah. it was uh 1157 um which was one of uh one of our artists and then yeah. uh, what Laura says was, yeah was the headliner uh, and i uh, remember i remember basically going through people's myspace pages because yes this is back when people still use myspace as their main source I, of music promotion and just blindly uh emailing people or messaging people on the websites and being like hey do you want to be a part of the show and uh the door sets message us back i knew race you there through some connections uh i knew some people that played in that band so we we, we got them and then Back then, like at the like 2009, 2010, there were four bands that had huge name presence locally that really were shaping things. It was Black Carl, Dry Riant Club, Mergence, and, and What Laura Says. At least in my mind, they were like the four big bands. So for me, getting like messaging What Laura Says was like a huge shot in the dark. Let's, let's just throw up this Hail Mary and see if they responded. I wasn't expecting them to respond to us at all, really. And they did. So, and they, they agreed to do our show. So for me, what Laura says out of, out of all the bands and, you know, 1157, which was like our band, you know, they were the one outside of them that I was like the most stoked that we got. Like I thought that they would draw a huge crowd because they were really popular. Crescent Ballroom wasn't a venue back then, but whatever that equivalent was, they could sell that out at the time. So mm -hmm. that was, that was what I was excited about. Like I thought, you know, April Fool's Day at a place like Alice Cooper's County, you got a band like what Laura says, this was like a home run show. Absolutely. Hell of a lineup, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was an incredible lineup. So yeah, so we had, you know, put together uh, an amazing lineup, uh, thanks to you, Jason. And uh, we had the venue sets. We had all these things in place for April Fool's Day. Um, we had uh, one of our friends uh, do the artwork for the flyer, which came out fantastic. Yeah. It's super cool. So we had a great flyer. We had a great venue. We had a fantastic lineup. We're like, this is great. We're yeah. set. <laughs> and then the problems started coming. And <laughs> they uh, it was like one after the other after the other coming up. It was, you know, the it was 
Uh, I'm trying to remember uh, a couple of the issues co- that were coming up, but I know that for some reason we had a real hard time promoting it, and I know like we had a really hard time getting people to get to be interested in the show. We were posting. Yeah, that our- was weird. I I think we even did some guerrilla marketing. I think you, we made some nice posters, and we were pla- we drove we were driving around plastering them in front of record stores and stuff like that. Uh, I can't recall why exactly the excitement wasn't there. Uh, the thing that sticks in my mind is that. Uh, especially when you're dealing with like the local music scene, location, location, location matters. Like, yeah. a, lot, a lot of them don't have, a lot of people that are in the scene, uh, they may not have transportation, so they rely on rides from other people. So local transportation is important. So even though Alice Cooper's town was downtown, like it wasn't next to the light rail. Uh, there wasn't a lot of easy parking there. Uh, and so, uh, even though we thought in our mind it was close to people that were doing this, like going to sports games, hanging out downtown, for the people that were in the local music scene, it was out of the way to them, you know. Uh, the problem. Yep, yeah, I agreed. That that's that was one of the major issues. Was the was ironically is that we thought that the centralized location would help, but nobody wanted to drive downtown. And yeah. um, that that became an issue. And parking also is a problem around that area, unfortunately. So it was yeah. an issue of parking and nobody wanted to, it was ironically ended up, we found out the hard way that was actually out of the way for most people, even though modified arts was, you know, was, was uptown uh, from downtown Phoenix. Uh, you know, it made, that was a big difference because Modified Arts was a little bit easier to find parking. It wasn't really in downtown, downtown. And also, area. Modified had a following in the in the in the yes. music and arts scene. Had a following. People will make the effort yeah. to go to Modified because they like Modified at the time. It was a really small venue and personable. Uh, so people will make the effort uh, to go if they're you know if they're big uh, at least at least in our community. I I'm, I can't speak for every music community, every scene, but for our scene at the time. People would make the effort to, you know, get together, carpool, go down there. And also, I think, I don't know if, if like, people kind of thought Alice Cooper's kind of was too corporate. And some of the people that, like, were more into indie thought that Alice Cooper was also corporate. So that had that going against us, too, as a venue. And I kind of got that vibe a little bit, too. But I, I don't I don't know for sure about that. I got, yeah, I got I that. If I, yeah, I, I did get that too a little bit. Where you know, because it wasn't like you know, like a you know, like an indie venue like Modified was or Salem yeah. or Long Wongs or something like that. Yeah. That yeah, that some people you know thought about it in a little bit different way. So yeah. I do agree with you that I think it was partially that, and then also again just that you know it felt out of the way for people yeah. to go to. Yeah. So that was I think a big problem there. I yeah. think that was probably. I guess I guess if you're planning one. a show, the scale that you're going to have to weigh is like. Then the the your, your, the fans that you have, and the the fan the people that are part of your local museum versus the people that aren't aware of it that you want to attract, right? That that's the scale when you're playing a show like this. You want to find a balance between you know getting getting the people from the local music scene and your and your and the fans of your bands, and then also trying to uh, bring new people, show new people what what the music scene is like, how many great bands there are, yeah. and I think by thinking too much about who we could attract. We weren't thinking enough about the people that could fill the seats or fill the venue, you know? I, I guess totally you agree. never really gotta kind of take the shot and hope that you attract a lot of new people and that people just yeah. turn out, but it's crapshoot, you know, you don't know yeah. how popular. Um, yeah. I know the parking down there is definitely hard. Like 
even now parking down downtown for a show is kind of difficult. Yeah, it's true. So there's that. It's, it's, it's still, it's, I mean, any kind of downtown area is always going to be challenged for parking. So if you're going to put an event down there, you really have to make sure that it's worth it to do so. Uh, the other thing that I thought too, that I, that I was always questioning, but it was honestly never really found out if this was the case or not was because it was an April fool's day show. Did people actually think it was an actual event in comparison (laughs) to it being a joke? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But we were promoting it. So I, I, I thought like, we had some good bands so i think it'd be kind of cool for people to assume like we would say what laura says was going to be at a show and then like be like psych you know yeah so i don't think anybody honestly thought that but that was to be perfectly honest in the back of my mind which is why i I never did a show again on april fool's day because i never want to be in that question that that situation again where it's like is this actually a show or you just you know are you just messing with us but do you remember uh the the weather problem too Yes. So that's the next thing I want to talk about. So we, at this point in time, I, I wasn't sure what to do with the show. I knew that we were having a hard time promoting this thing. We were having really time, hard time getting people to be interested in this. And I, uh, we saw the weather and noticed that there was a possibility of raining on that day. And I remember talking to the event organizers about it and they, we both had the same concerns so they told me that we could bump it to another day um, and when, you know, if we wanted to and so forth, then that would be totally fine. And at the time, I thought that would be a good out because the show wasn't going well at that point in time. And if we moved it for another day, we would just call it something different. It wouldn't be an April Fool's Day show anymore. We'd just call it a different name. We'd just basically say, hey, you know, because of, you know, potential rain is being postponed and we're b- bumming it to another day. And that would give us a little bit more time to kind of regroup, figure out how to better promote this and how to draw the attention and uh, and then have it at a later time. However, the flip side of that is making, you know, would the entire lineup move with the show? Because we already had everyone agree on this particular date. So would we be able to move everybody to... Uh, to a different date for this particular show can we keep the exact same lineup and i know i had um you know real uh conversations with you jason i remember having conversations with 1157 and some of the other artists as well and uh, we think we all decided that you know what rain or shine let's just you know we've already committed to this you know and there's no guarantee that it's actually going to rain so let's go ahead and let's move forward with this because yeah. this is a fantastic lineup and uh the likelihood of us being able to reschedule it is very unlikely to have yeah. the exact same band. So let's, yeah. let's go for it. Yeah. I remember my, my mindset at the time. I remember we, I would say that it was heated, but we definitely had uh, a little bit of an intense discussion on it. it was just that like, for me, it's like with Halloween, you know, you people dress up all week long. Sometimes they have, if it's on a week of Halloween's on a weekday, they'll have the weekend parties. Christmas, you can celebrate and people do celebrate the month before Christmas and until New yeah. Year's. You have that flexibility. April Fools really relies on the day. It really relies on April first, and yeah. so I remember in my mind it was like we're already kind of having trouble promoting the show on um, being an April first show. So if we move it to the second, now it's like one of the main things that might attract people is now gone. You know, now it's not even an April Fool show; it's an April April second day show. And to me, like you know, I just didn't know if people would bite. You know, and and I remember the rain 
like what was it? It was like fifteen to twenty percent chance of rain. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I it was, was like, it was a small chance. It was a small chance. I was in my mind. I was like, I think we can risk it. You know, plus we had a good lineup. We had commitments advance. So for me, it was like, I think we can take the 20% chance and risk it, you know, and then just try to promote the show as best we could up until that point. Makes I sense. Know for me, the, um, the opposite of that argument was the fact that knowing full well that the show was not boating well at this point in time and that, it, you know, f- our promotional efforts was not working, that for me you know you 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 can you you at that point in time you can't just go to the venue and be like oh sorry can we bump it to another time frame at that point in time you're committed so the fact yeah. that they came to me and said yeah if you want to reschedule it you can with with basically no consequences as far as the venue was concerned yeah, that, that was, is rare that, that is, is rare. very rare so for that reason i was really seriously considering it because of those reasons because this also was a, a show where i did put in some sort of uh, financial uh, investment and financial risk behind it. So that yeah. was the other thing too, is I was really worried about that fact that I did have, you know, I was financially, you know, invested into this one. And yeah. so for those reasons as well, I didn't want to lose money on this, but I also at the same to- token didn't want to, you know, there's also the morale of not only the whole team, like you, especially Jason, um, but as well as 1157, our artist, as well as the art- other artists too, is that I didn't want to necessarily everyone essentially bummed out and be demotivated from doing this event period. And then that could make the, even doing a future date even worse because I had to do something at the venue. Um, But even if it was bumped to a future date, I want everyone to still be excited about it. And so for me, it was a a risk of, well, we can try this now and just see what happens and take the risk or we can move it uh, that, and that may give us the opportunity to changing up our promotional efforts and trying something different out and get better results or may end up being the same or even worse because the lineup now has changed and everyone's no longer very excited about the show. So mm. it, it was kind of a hard decision to really make at that point in time being faced with this decision. But ultimately, I decided, you know what, I, I'm, you know, as a leader, that to me, it's more important to have, the you know, the morale of the entire group as high as possible rather than trying to move yeah. something that may or may not mitigate the financial risk that I've already taken on this show. Yeah. 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 You want people to be, to want to come out, you know, exactly. So, um, but then anyway, uh, so the show didn't happen. Fortunately, it did not rain. So yes. that we really lucked out on. So it did not rain. And uh, you know, the people that did show up had a fantastic time. I will say that, that everyone who did show up had a blast. Every, yes. um, the bands all had a great time. Everything ran on time. We even had uh, one of my good friends, he set up a podcast booth. So he was interviewing oh. the, the musicians, um, you know, um, in between sets. So that was really fun. Um, everyone had a really, really good time. So that's something yeah. that I, I was very proud of the fact that, you, you know, even though the turnout was very low, uh, it was actually end up being lower than what we had at Modified Arts, but um, not by much. But because no. it was a much bigger venue, that became a problem. So it was, yeah. You know, we were expecting. I think uh, the goal was at least one to two hundred people um, yeah. to that, which is kind of funny to think about now because that's like the expectation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But back then, like one hundred, two hundred people to us was a lot, and it was, it, it, and it was like <laughs> maybe like fifty, sixty. So that yeah. actually ended up attending. And um, so for those reasons, the turnout was much lower. And because of the 
uh, financial exposure that I had on that show, I actually ended up losing around eight hundred dollars um, on that Whoa. event. I remember. Wow. I remember another thing too. It's like we were also expecting what Laura says to draw a lot of people, and I remember them telling us after the fact that they were they played a house show the day before our show, and so I think they were remember telling us that they that show probably took away people that would have otherwise came to our show, you know. So another thing to kind of think about when you're making your shows is don't be afraid to to you know ask your bands who are performing what their schedule is like in the week or the days leading up to your show because you know you don't want to if you're especially if it's a big show if this is like your event show you don't want to risk you know the shows cannibalizing each other and taking away draw you know yeah i agree and and the other thing too is um something that i realized back then is to not always rely on the on the headliner to bring everything. Yeah, that's true too. Yeah. And that's the other thing as well is that I feel that um, one of the mistakes that we've made is that we really re- leaned heavily on what Laura says, and I don't think that was necessarily fair on them either. That we no. leaned on yeah. them so yeah. much for bringing the draw out, and yeah. you know, having that headliner name is great, but but you you have to do still do your part to promote, and we did promote, we did promote it, we, we did, did. we did hard. promote, yeah. But yeah. I think we, but I think we definitely relied on their draw to really make yeah. sure that the events was a success. You want and, you want your honeymoon phase between the acts you get and the show to be short. Yes, you yes. know you want you want to like it's like a, a sports team that like you know after they win a championship they grind like one or two days they give themselves like one or two days to celebrate their victory. You know you want to you want to be celebrate if you're putting on a big show the acts that you get, but you don't want to take away too much of the focus of like you know doing 100% of everything you can on your end to make sure that it's a success. And again, like Mike said, one of the things to do that is to make sure it doesn't rely on one band, you know, yeah. for them to bring out their fans. You want to have a, a, a good lineup from top to bottom as much as you can, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was a, you know, even though it was an expensive lesson, that was a, that was a really good lesson to learn. And even to this day, like I always go back and saying like what, what I've done differently. And, and actually, ironically, what I've learned is you can't really do that to yourself because even if we decide to move it, it could have made matters even wor- worse than it was. And even though it was an $800 lesson, in reality, $800 lesson is not that bad, that not that big of a deal. And at the end of the day, everyone was happy. And that was the most important part is that all the bands, all the bands had a great time. The people who showed up had a fantastic time. The venue was satisfied. So at the end of the day, and um, as also as a leader, to me, that's the more the more important thing is that at the end of the day, you know, I want to make sure that everybody else is satisfied and happy with working with my company. And yeah. um, that means more to me, that even if it means taking a little bit of a loss there. Um, that's how you build your reputation. And I'm pretty proud of that fact that, you know, after all this time that we have a very good reputation because of that fact is that we make sure that everyone's yeah. taken care of. That's part that's part of what we do. Yeah. So then we can move on to um so yeah so we can move on to some other shows so um I'm trying to think of some other shows that we were involved with both the ones that worked out really well and ones that did not work out well the one that comes to mind is the Kamikaze show oh have- yes oh yes okay so Bad. I th- I think both of you there were, were there for that one right did you both yeah, that one so, I think yeah, so. so I remember really really uh, organizing uh, the show with you Mike. Uh, Again, this this was especially well. We were uh, this is 2013, 
we were more established. We definitely had some bigger names that were more recognizable in the music scene. And so it was really uh, trying to think outside the box, up the ante, because now at the time, each one he had the artist. So now it's like making the name for the label in other ways. And all three of us are nerds in our own way. And so we're all drawn to Comic-Con or what, what, I, what, what's, it, it's, what's, what's it called now, Matt? It's not Comic-Con anymore. It's fan fusion right now. It's, it's fan fusion uh, now, but. Some of us yeah, call, I, it, call it confusion because it's confusing. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so yeah, so but but Comic Con is a, is a huge thing, uh, or what was was then Comic Con is a huge thing. It's a it's a multi day event, you know. They usually it's, have a good line of guest speakers and stuff like that. So, you know, like like we were talking about earlier about wanting to draw in people that would not normally be aware of like our artists or our label and stuff like that or the music scene. Uh, perfect opportunity. There's yeah, hundreds. It's a perfect opportunity to. Uh, you know, expose people to our bands and the great music that was happening at the time in, in, in Phoenix and in the Valley. Uh, we got really ambitious with this one. Uh, it was like, it was like almost like a mini, <laughs> a mini uh, South by Southwest in a way, because yeah. the show started at a venue called the Monarch. It was a, it's a small kind of more intimate theater right across from where Comic-Con was happening. We had about four or five acts that performed there. And then the goal was to try and get people to take the light rail because it was right in front of the light where we kind of learned our lesson there about, you know, making sure you were in front of transportation that was easy for people to access your venues. Literally take the light rail to Crescent Ballroom, which was like like three, four blocks west of the Monarch, you know, and wrap the show up there with four other acts throughout the night. And so yeah. it was like trying to draw people from Comic-Con uh, to the show, hopefully like what they hear at the venue there, and then get them to check out Crescent, which was two or three years old at the time, really hip, really cool venue, and get people to hear the bands, uh, the rest of the bands that were playing there. And it was, and like we said earlier, not really on your headliners, this is a good lineup. Uh, Fairy Bones, which was just starting out and getting a name for themselves, A Life of Science, Zero Zero, Sir Robinson, The Midnight Special, Statues of Cats, uh, Palms, which was one of our uh, bands that yep. we had signed that I really liked, uh, Captain Squeegee and Decker. Uh, so that was that was a stacked lineup. And so uh, I don't know, Mike, if you what would you want to add about the the uh, event and your ideas and what you remember about it and putting it on? Oh, I remember a lot of things, but actually, I want to hear from Matt first. So, Matt, what okay. do you what do you right. remember uh, from the event? Um, I remember being really excited because I had gone to Comic Con. I first time the year before um and you know we are all nerds and geeks so it's already an event I'm, I'm super hyped for so to have it um have it with the label and have a show going on at the same time just seemed like a really crazy and awesome thing um I do remember going to Crescent I know we had some trouble with getting people to come out to the venue because they're probably mostly um already at the convention center or doing nerdy stuff that's that's closer to the buildings so that was one um, thing that we wanted to improve on uh, in following years was like guiding people to venues outside. Um, I remember the I remember going to the Monarch. That was a really cool venue for a while. Um, and I I can't remember. I think Fairy Bones played the Monarch. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they're the first that, band that played. 
Um, so it was just a really busy time, but it was, it was fun to be promoting that show and to kind of have it intertwined with like the nerdy geeky culture and just the, the fun of the convention, um, itself, you know? Absolutely. So I remember, so here's what I remember about that event is that at this point in time, we wanted to do another show again, because yeah. that that's, that's the thing about, uh, <laughs> the abusiveness of putting on shows is that every time you put on a show, you get very excited until it gets to the point of putting it on. And then you're yeah. stressed at, you're stressed out by putting this on the event happens. And then you promise you'll never do one ever again. And then about six months later, you get the urge to do another one. So yeah. we, we, we want to do something, but we learned our lessons from, you know, especially from the April fool's day show and going, okay, if we're going to do something, you know, we want to have something, if we're going to do something downtown, let's do it around something that, people are already going to be downtown for. And again, as Jason, like you mentioned, we're all nerds. So we're like, Hey, let's do something for comic-con because that would be, that would be really fun. And there's yeah. no, there's there. And we checked. And, and I remember from prior years as well, that there's no, you know, organized event like music that really happens in, in downtown Phoenix for Phoenix, for Phoenix comic-con, or at least that's what we were aware of. And yeah. And this was definitely before, way before they had actual music uh, acts at the convention itself. This was way yeah. before them. So yeah, we knew um, that there was, you know, there should be some sort of demand there because there's all these people downtown. You know, everybody likes music, and there's a lot of uh, music fans that know the local music scene that are going to be going to Phoenix Comic Con. Yeah. So we already have them, but then we uh, had to decide on where to have it, and I remember that we had a conversation of, okay, well, do we have it super close, like walking distance from the convention center? Or do we have it, you know, slightly off a little bit? And the mm -hmm. two venues that we had was Crescent Ballroom and Monarch, where Monarch would be walking distance. But Crescent Ballroom, um, again, as you mentioned, Jason, is was brand new. This is where a lot of our the local music uh, artists were performing at, at the time and so it forth. It was the hip place. It was yeah. the hip yeah. place. So I know that we were deciding on – okay, well, which one should we go for? And I think at one point, and I'm pretty sure it was me because I'm insane, is I said, well, why don't we do both? Why don't we do both? Let's, let's make it into a whole thing where we would start during the day because that's yeah. when everyone's going to the convention center is, is when, the, when the con floor is open and yeah. doing a monarch during the day and have a day show. And then in the evening, then direct everybody to Crescent Ballroom. Um, yeah. for the of the night, I believe, like that was the last, the part of the show was Crescent. It was. Yeah. It was. And correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. Wasn't also Viva Phoenix around at this time? As no. Well? This wow. is before Viva Phoenix. This oh, it was, was before Viva Phoenix. Okay. Yeah. So th at this point in time, the only thing really going on downtown Phoenix was was Crescent Ballroom for for our genre music. Monarch was more known for like hip hop acts and um, you know, electronic acts and things like that. Yeah, That's dance what, acts. Yeah, dance uh, acts, things like that was over at, at Monarch. So um, us being more of an indie label a rock label things like that really the venue downtown that people knew about at that point was crescent ballroom like that was the place to go to so it really came down to okay you know maybe we can do both and then we can have some at monarch and then we can have some over at crescent and then we also came up with some ideas of well then how can we convince people to not only a show up but b uh also be convinced to go to both shows so i know we had lots of ideas we had um, where if you show up in cos is in your cosplay costume, you get a discount. Um, yeah. We also had it too, where you get uh you get a break like a bundle package where you can get both shows for a discounted price if you right, get both yeah. of them at once. So we try like all these fun things out, 
And um, you're right. Like we, we knew we learned from our lessons that time of, OK, well, we want to make sure that it's conveniently located, which is what we thought, like you said, right off the light rail um, for both venues, um, walking distance, right where all the action is. So where at where everyone's going to be at and then also making sure that the lineup isn't relying on just the headliner. And then so we had a stacked lineup for both events where each Very- act would draw people. Yeah, yeah, and and, I, I, and it looks like Monarch leaned a little more, leaned a little more like no life of science zero zero more keyboard based fairy bumps is like a like a dramatic rock act that relied on keyboards and then like the Crescent uh, event was like Decker and Ponce stuff like that was a little more rock based as well so we had themes for those venues as well yeah, yeah. worked together well yeah uh, did we have anyone performing at the convention center for that show. No. Yeah, I don't think at that no. point in okay. time they so were... it was just monarchy. Yeah, we didn't have anything at the convention center. I know that um at that point in time there were no music acts at at the convention center itself during the day. Okay. I think there were things happening in the evenings that we weren't aware of um that were happening at the actual convention center itself as well as some other places outside of it, but it was not on our radar at this point at that point in time. Like we weren't necessarily aware of it. So what I remember then is that this kind of kicked off the convention center, bringing back music for years to come. So this kind of like encouraged them to start doing that, which is really awesome that this one show brought that element to the convention, you know, cause uh, even game on expo does that. Now they have mega ran and they have bands come out and play. And I think they were all inspired maybe by that single show. I, you know what? I'll take your word for it. I have no idea. <laughs> I have honestly no clue. I mean, I hope that was the case because you're right is that they didn't start doing more music acts afterwards. So I'm hoping that they were aware of it. But honestly, I have no idea. And I've and and um we've worked with uh Phoenix Comic Con directly too um on booking acts as well. So I've worked with them directly on that front. And I don't think at any point in time they rec- <laughs> they gave me any kind of you know mentioned to me at any point in time that that the reason why they're doing it was because of our show so it could be completely coincidental or it could be the fact that they saw what we were doing and thought they want to get involved with it i honestly have if anybody's listening out here if you are part of phoenix fan fusion um i actually know some of you out there that um that were part of it uh if that's the case please let me know because that would be super yeah. cool if we were the reason why music's now a part of it yeah oh but, also the the first show was all ages too Yes, that's the other. That was the say. other difference. So anyone, anyone could attend the Monarch show, and it was twenty-one plus for the Crescent. That's the other thing too is when you're putting on events is the the um you know the age restrictions, and that's something that is sometimes overlooked because when you're doing a twenty-one and over show, which a lot of venues do, uh, depending upon the kind of acts that you're having, that can be limiting to who you are, your audience is, and also that's now looking back. That's one of the other reasons why we decided Alice Cooperstown because Alice Cooperstown was all ages. Like we can make it all ages because it was a restaurant. Yeah. And so for those reasons, we knew that would open up how many people can show up and people can still drink alcohol and things like that too because, again, it's a restaurant. Uh, but that's not always the case. So, you know, in the case of specifically Crescent Ballroom, uh, even though they do sometimes will do all ages events, they mostly want to do 21 and over. Um, because yeah. it usually requires extra security and things like that, which they don't want yeah. to do. 
And but for um, Monarch, I think we were able to work it out with them that because it was during the day that we can make it an all ages event. So this yeah. that's, that was the other thing, too, is that we had one event that was all ages and then another event in the evening that was 21 and over. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah I remember. So I remember, OK, cool. We have one that's all ages, one that's 21 and over. We have themes for each one. But the overall underlying theme is um, that's all based upon the comic convention. Um, we had all the artists super excited, so they all were in, um, doing cosplay things, and so they got super into it as well. Uh, also, again, had an artist do a really fantastic job with making all the acts on the lineup look like superheroes. It was super cool and fun. Um, I remember that. Yeah, like I still have those. The, I still have those graphics somewhere. So uh, uh, that was that, so that was fantastic, and we we thought the locations were great. Everything was great, and then the event happened. And hardly anybody showed up for either one of them. And yeah. I remember that. It was still a great time. Again, everything, you know, all ever, all the acts had a fantastic time. Everything went on time. And I know I say that, but believe me, everybody, that to keep a show on time is really, really hard. It's difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult. And so we, we pride on that fact that we make sure that everyone is taken care of and that everyone is on time to be respectful for both the audience as well as the bands themselves. So, uh, that went really well, but yeah, I think there were, I think there were a whole slew of different issues and things that we've learned since then. And, and that was, I I think the takeaways that I got from that was, uh, from Monarch. I saw a lot of people just passing by and just did not care. So I'll think, yeah, I remember that there, uh, we would rotate, and be out front of the venue and try to draw people that were passing by from, from Comic-Con to come in. And I think it was at a point of the day where uh, people were fanning out, you know, so hard that they were just exhausted by the end and were just ready to go yep. home, yep. you know? And, and, you know, it, when, you know, when you, when you're probably getting up early, you're putting on your cosplay outfit, if you're doing that and you're getting there early to get in line for the different uh, presentations and panels that you have, you're probably exhausted by the end of it. And oh, I think yeah. we, we underestimated was just like how much energy and, uh, you know, both physically and mentally people would have after they were done with, with Comic-Con to then invest it in, you know, two different shows that ran from 3.30 to 12.15 at night. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a case, I think, of overstimulation where you just have so much going on that yeah. you see you see a venue and maybe you're not quite interested because you have so many panels and so many other things going on, or maybe you think, Oh, I'll, I'll go check that out later or something like that. There's just too much to do in one day. Yeah. You know, it's always the case with uh, the convention. Yeah. yeah. We, we, I, I remember we were, we were even handing out the $2 off flyers and trying to entice people that way. Like, you know, here you're, you, you get money off if you come to yeah. the show and people are just that. like walking by, you know, and I, and quite a few people had young kids too. And maybe they thought that, a concert like that wasn't you know even if it was an all age show wasn't like the best environment for their fan i don't know but yeah that we definitely uh overestimated people's like the, the, the comic-con fans enthusiasm for an event like that i think i agree i think that it was there wasn't enough of a audience that was going to phoenix comic-con that was going to be interested enough that after going onto the floor all day long that they're going to be interested in going to a show afterwards yeah and now it's it's mostly uh you just see the radio set up actually in the convention center 
you see the radio stations, the convention center. Um, for many years, they also had uh, performances outside. Um, yep. So they usually will have like some sort of uh, music stage set up as well. And that's one of the things that A20 Records has done. It was a couple of years later, we actually end up booking all four days at the uh, Phoenix Convention Center. Uh, Wasn't that for, the year, the following year, like 2014, 2015? It was 2015. That, that happened? Yeah. Yeah, 2015. So we teamed up with Epic Proportions Tour on that event. And so the two the two companies we uh, put together um, this entire lineup, I, mean, I think it was, uh, I think, 14 acts that we had total that wow. we booked for all four of those days was at the uh Phoenix. And that's a whole other slew of stories that I can certainly tell. Yeah. Cuz that 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 was a lot of fun but man that, that there were a lot of there were a lot of challenges there. So because you know for everyone listening this was in, we were talking about before about making sure we didn't do shows during the middle of July. This is happening in May where it's still really hot where it's it tripled still triple digits outside and we literally had dealing with musicians dealing with heat stroke um at yeah. at there. So like it was you know, trying to keep everyone hydrated and shaded and things like that was was end up being a, like a real big concern, um, which it was even ahead of time. But like we even then, like keeping everyone hydrated, uh, people were still having problems. So it was another good uh, another lesson learned. Fortunately, everyone was OK, but it was uh, that was definitely a very much of a challenge. And also managing and booking 14 acts. That was just absolutely insane. I bet. Yeah. All the time slots going, keeping all the bands happy, and that's a lot to juggle. It yeah. was, and it was mostly, you know, even though it was t- teaming up with a Epic Proportions tour, but like, um, but uh, Gabe Kabanda, who is currently an artist on Eight Twenty Records, um, he was the uh, co-owner of of it, but he was also performing as well. So he was one of the performers, and he was helping me organize it, um, with with his business partner too. So it was a lot of work to try to you know put together between the eighty twenty team and the Epic Proportions team, still managing fourteen acts was yeah. a lot of work. That's a lot of yeah. juggling. Even the best jugglers would struggle with that amount of juggling. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Going back to uh, the costumes, even when you're inside, if you have an elaborate enough costumes um it it still gets hot and it's still hard to manage sometimes depending on what you're wearing so even if you're going outside it gets that much worse you know wearing like big armor pieces or whatever like it's it's very difficult to cake to make up yeah yep exactly so yeah but um not all shows were uh like did not meet up to our expectations there were many shows that we've done together that did extremely well and one of the things that in fact i believe jason you mentioned um before we started recording was the uh captain squeegee album release show that we did together because i think that um all of us were there I, 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 yeah i know matt matt said he had some stories about about that show right yeah did you, yeah matt matt i remember doing that show but i think matt had specific things he wanted to talk about regarding that show well yeah there was one thing um, specifically, and not that um, it wasn't an awesome show because it was amazing um, performance. And I think Instructions was the opening band. Yeah, um, it was a when, tight three band uh, uh, yeah, lineup. When the show was over, I remember we were at the booth and I remember we just had like a sea of people come in to buy the record, which was amazing. But we were like frantically like, oh, what do we do? Because we had we had like so much demand coming in after the show, um, you know, for the record and for the key, which I have here. Oh, you have one of the keys. Okay. So everyone listening. So one of the things that we did with, uh, Captain Squeegee, 
which was one of our bands back then, is we did. I remember this. The, the lead singer said, "Mike, I want to, I want to have a USB like thing, but like as a key, but literally look like a key." Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, okay. So like, like he, he he said like well not just any key like an old fashioned looking yeah. key. Yeah. So one of one of the the songs on that record was the key and that and the yes. key was kind of a driving right. theme throughout the entire album as well. Right. Yes, exactly. So with this information of this request from a, one of our artists, I said I have absolutely no idea how we're going to make this happen. So um um our my business partner Brian, who is my brother, um he did his homework and research and then found this company in China that actually made um this like that actually made a usb key that made it look like an old-fashioned key and we could also put a logo on there so we we um so we reached out to that company and we were able to make i think 200 like 100 200 of them something around there of these keys and they came out they were actually really cool because like they were they were nice they were super nice like it was a huge risk but it was super nice because they had um they had the logo on there and it was metal and so it had this weight to it, and it, so it felt really nice. And yeah. we put we dumped the entire album on there. We actually put the prior albums on there. We put the wave files but, in there and flack files, like all the different there's files sheet music, like the sheet, sheet yeah, music, people could use lyrics, photos, photos. Lyrics. Yeah, we had so, like everything we could possibly dump onto that thing. We did, and even though ironically, the majority of it, except for maybe the um, the higher quality digital files, were all available online. It was. It, w- it became a collector's item and I can't tell you uh, how impressed uh, like how surprised I was of how fast those things sold because everyone yeah. came up to it they looked at them it was something that was different and unique and you can I literally witnessed myself because I ran the merch table a couple of times and mm. people would pick up the key and you can see them like feeling the weight of it in their hands and you can see their reaction changing when they felt it and like ooh this is cool. It also and, helped that there was such a huge demand for that record. Yeah. Like fans of that band were waiting five years for just the record in general to come yep. out, you know, and they had been touring that the songs around that record for years. And they, and they did the songs were so much different than what had they had done on their previous record and much more experimental and jazzy and branched out. So there was like the perfect combination of like hype and anticipation and then you have this great product in that key on top of like the CDs or the records of two that just drew people to the merch booth, you know? Yeah. I think we sold out of a lot of things that night. Cause we, we did. Yeah. So much energy. People really wanted a, a copy of it. Absolutely. Um, do you guys have any other stories to tell um, about the Captain Squeegee show or any other shows for that matter that you guys remember? Um. Wow. I mean, there's so many shows that we did. Um, I have a, I remember working, um, I think for zero zero at the rope bar a couple of times. Um, I remember when they, they debuted and that giant truck that they brought, um, remember going on the road with them. I mean, you know, we have a lot of stories about <laughs> different shows that we worked and whatnot. If, um, this is a question for uh, both of you, but, um, after all these, um, years, is there, um, a fundamental listen, lesson that you've learned about um, you being in the music industry um, that you learned um, with all your time, uh, you know, with 8020 Records. Oh, boy. <laughs> I know. Deep question. Um, yeah. 
that could be that the answer to that question could be its own podcast. It's true. Uh, but really, what, what's one of it, your top ones? I mean, really, in the music scene, it really is just about it's the music, like being in the music business, it's a constant juggling act. It's about managing expectations versus reality. It's about managing what your bands or artists want versus what you can provide. It's about managing your their fans' expectations. It's about uh, managing what people expect of your record label, your business versus what you can provide them. And it's always important to have a good uh, recognition and a good balance of managing those expectations. You know, we've been like, like in this podcast, we've been talking about uh, shows where we really swung for the fence, you know, and we learned some lessons by doing that. Uh, but, you know, in my mind, it's always important you know, to take those risks, to really go for it, uh, you know, and to try and, and make a name for yourself or your, you know, your label, your band or your whatever company you have, you know, and take these risks. But it should also come, you know, especially if you're managing a band or whatever, they should also be aware of the reality. You know, you should you should push them to take risks, but at the same time, you know, let them know this comes with something this this comes with, you know, a chance of it failing or not living up to your expectation, you know? So that's definitely something that, you know, as you're, as you're, as you're doing things, you really need to be cognizant about, you know, you know, diving, you know, diving in head first in the pool, but making sure that you've got maybe some water, water wings on while you're, while you're taking that dive, just in case something happens, you know? How about you, Matt? Um, you know, I think that communication was the main thing um, that I noticed, which was communication between like the label and the bands was so important, but also communication between the band members was something that, that came up a lot. So I think looking back that having clear communication was the most important when it came to just managing and, and things that we did with them and things they did with each other and, and getting everything booked, that, that always seemed to be the key factor um, with shows and with performances and with business things was just having a clear communication and like kind of you know we touched on on the contracts kind of saying like you know this is what what this is going to be and just having very clear rules and clear communication on how how they're going to get paid and just how how business is going to go really so I think that's the most important thing I learned well I want to say thank you to both of you both um you Matt oh, and Jason I, can I, can I? Oh, yes. can, I, can I actually, I actually remembered something like before we, yes, because I, 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 I didn't know we were, that was a wrap up question. Uh, but, but, <laughs> but felt... there, there's, there's an event I want to talk about where I think my personally think it was the most successful event that we did that, uh, well, while I was with 8020, that was a perfect, uh, perfect, uh, you know, uh, kind of a way that, that shows how you can manage expectations. So well, was that Decker, uh, Decker show. Yes. Uh, for, the, for those that don't know, uh, Decker's a really popular local uh, band uh, around town. Brian Decker's the lead singer. Uh, you know, great records, great music. He's beloved by the local music community. Uh, he was, him and his band were doing a national tour and they got into an accident. Their van rolled over. One of the members like flew out the window, uh, had yeah. to be transported to the hospital with a broken neck. I think most of the band had to. Uh, wow. And we, and uh, 
it was pretty shocking at the time to everybody that was in the music community. And, uh, you know, we wanted to do something. I know Dry Clip, who was on our label at the time, wanted us to do something or wanted to do something with us on that. And so we were thinking, okay, what, what can we do? You know, how can we help? And uh, we came up with the idea of a, of a tribute, of a, not a tribute, show, but, a, but a fundraiser, a fundraiser to help them, you know, recoup some of the costs from, you know, whatever medical procedures, you know, anything, anything medical that they would have to, yeah. to go through, that would be a way to help them with that. Uh, so uh, on the artist front, luckily, uh, everybody was, uh, you know, wanted, wanted to do this. People, fans were reaching out to us. So we had an unbelievable lineup. We had a uh, driver yacht club, obviously uh futureless past banana gun, uh, Japanese descent, danger, Paul, Dr. Bones, uh, Palms, which they joined before we were working with them professionally, and then the Madeira Strand. Uh, so eight bands front to back. That in 2012, that that was like the peak. I I thought that that we could do. Uh, and then after that, it was the venue. Uh, Nicole from uh, at the time was working with Equicop Productions helped us book the sale in, uh, which at the time was a the night the ideal venue for for local bands especially rock bands because it had two stages so a lot of bands went there for their cd release shows because you could have bands playing one after the other on two stages the only problem was it was on a thursday night uh and as we talked about earlier in the podcast you know the date is everything and we were kind of concerned okay especially i think you know, i think we didn't have too much of a notice because we wanted to get this going as soon as possible to to raise money for them uh you know our concern was you know could 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 the show could the show work on that day could could we bring enough people in, even with that great lineup uh and then there was marketing and i remember for me when you're doing something something like this there's a balance because you want to promote the show because you want people to come to the show because you want people to you know help raise money for this band but at the same time, you don't want to ex- feel like you're exploiting the band or this injury. Yeah. You know, you don't want people to have the perception that you're milking this tragic accident so that you can make be making a name for yourself, you know, and, and yeah. you know, ride their coattails. So that was a, a, a delicate balance that that when I was marking the uh, the show that I tried to do, I think uh, we had a few articles written that went in depth about what happened to kind of explain to people what the point of the show was. Uh, we had a raffle to further raise money. So like we went to all these different businesses and a lot of business from Z records to local restaurants, donated gift cards and stuff like that for raffle prizes. And uh, that was great. And so I remember Thursday came, we were crossing our fingers on, on it. And uh, I think 150 people ended up showing up, which for Thursday was, was pretty, pretty remarkable. Uh, and I think we raised about a thousand dollars. And I remember after the show, we gave directly to Brian Decker, and he was like, "This is going to pay for Brian's medical bills. Like, this will cover it." So, for me, that was probably the most rewarding experience when during my time on the label. And again, it was managing expectations. You know, promoting the show, but making sure that we were doing this truly for the band. Yeah. You know, working with Decker, but also telling him we're going to try to help you, but. We're, I mean, we weren't going to promise him we were going to raise a ton of money, but we were, we we're helping you we trying the best we can for you. There's, you know, magic expectations, the arts and stuff like that, you know, expectations on how long they play, when they play and stuff like that. And so, you know, for those reasons, I think that that was the most successful show that I, that I was a part of 
don't know. If, I don't know if you remember that show, Mike, or have any experiences that you remember from that show. I but do. I that would that would be my vote for most successful show that I did with you when I was working for E20. That show was very rewarding um, for lots of reasons, but one of the biggest ones was the fact that you, Jason, were the one who approached me about the idea, and I fully supported it and uh, and wanted to help put it together, but you were the one who put it, pretty much put the, almost the entire thing together. You really spearheaded the whole event, and that was actually one of my proudest moments of 8020 not not specific, not just because of the fact that we were able to support Decker, but because of the fact that you really took the reins and uh, really wanted to do this event, and you did a fantastic job from it. That's what I remember from that event. Yeah, yeah. I guess that was that was that was a good night in many ways. Yeah. No. And yeah. there are also there are also tours that I did. Uh, I did a tour uh, with Driver Yacht Club. I was basically their de facto roadie uh, manager while they were doing their tour for South by Southwest that wrapped with uh, our showcase show we did Hole in the Wall in Austin. I think we were part of that, right? Oh, yeah. I I was there. Um, Matt, were you part of that? No, but I, I remember hearing Jason tell me about this story because I know it's one of his, his favorite experiences with them on the road. That, I, that Yeah, that tour could be its own podcast episode. I, really. I flew... I flew out, so that, that was a tour out to South by Southwest, and you drove out with the band, and I was like, nope, I'm going to fly. So <laughs> I flew out uh, to, and ironically, that was the time where I wasn't, like, that was the first time in um, that I was there for uh, a South by Southwest, so I didn't actually go to many things, and that those events that had Driver River Yacht Club were all unofficial like showcases. That showcases, were actually, yeah, yeah, they were off the yeah. beaten path. So mostly was going to those, and then in addition, just kind of checking out downtown Austin and seeing what it was all about. But that was the first experience with South by was was that. So, huh? um, Matt, do you um were there any other um shows or events that you can recall that uh that that you remember um, doing? I mean, yeah, there's, there's so many. Um, I remember we did a showcase at the hard rock that one time, I think for like a competition. Yeah. Um, that was for a hard rock rising competition um, that zero zero was a part of. So we, we put together flyers and pushed that around to, yep. The biggest thing I remember is just going on tour with zero zero and seeing uh, palms and one of my other favorite bands, the burning of Rome, um, doing a show in California and in Las Vegas and just kind of uh, getting my first touring experience. Um, it was really fun and being a part of the record and being able to like support the bands in that way was really awesome. Um, and that's one of the highlights of working for the 8020 that I remember and really enjoyed. Um, and just talking about all this stuff, man, I had, I had so much fun working for the label and doing all these things. Um, it helped me get through school and it was just really a, a great time. Cool. And then I also, I also remember doing a, a tour with Gabe, uh, I think their first summer tour through Epic Proportions. Uh, again, that could be its own podcast. That was a, oh, how long was that? Seven, eight week tour <laughs> across the Southwest uh, U.S. That, that yeah. was, that was, uh, that, that was a, uh, that was a time. There was definitely a lot of uh, cool stories and interesting uh, tales I could tell about that. But that was, that was, that was a fun time as well. Well, maybe we should have another episode about just talking about the touring experiences sure, that we, we all had together. Absolutely, that, that that that's that's a lot of fun. 
But yeah. um, I just I do want to say that um, uh, that I do I cannot appreciate uh, enough uh, both of you for all the help that you've done over the years with eighty twenty records. Uh, I, I I say this a lot, but it deserves repeating that uh, I'm only as good as my team and. Uh, without without my you know without the team behind 820 records supporting our artists and the things that we do uh, there's no way i could possibly run this so and you were you were both there in the very beginning and that means a lot to me and so um thank you both so so much for all your support and all your help of all these years and um it does mean the world to me so thank you both oh and, and thank you for bringing us in and giving the chance yeah to absolutely get- Industry. thanks for all you've done for the past yeah. 13 years yeah it's amazing so by the time by the time this episode comes out we'll, we'll just celebrate our 13 year anniversary as a company so um, it's, it's amazing journey and uh you know looking forward to the next i guess 13 if you will i know it's a kind of a weird milestone but sure we'll we'll say that but um thank you both so much and i really do appreciate both of you being on the podcast absolutely anytime Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. To learn more about 8020 Records, you can check us out on pretty much any social media at 8020records or visit our website at www.8020records.com. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and be productive. <laughs>